Ready. Hello class, this is your Professor Debbie. Welcome to True Crime University, where we have intellectual discussions about crime. This is a class for mature audiences with mature language. Our purpose is to learn about criminals, not glorify them. All the information I have is from public sources. How's everybody tonight? Before we get into the end of Mr. Bravik here, I just want to make a, an announcement. This is so embarrassing. The first episode of him I was listening to after I had already had it up for a couple days and to my consternation and great embarrassment I realized that I called him Armin not once not twice not five but like a hundred times because I was getting him mixed up with Armin Mabus and I'm like oh my god this is so embarrassing so I unpublished it and redid it every time I said Armin I put in Anders and hopefully it sounds a lot better now but we're gonna finish this up today and if you remember back on when we left off on uh, July 22nd of 2011 on the island of Utoya the massacre was going on and earlier that morning, you know, the, the Prime Minister Groh was going to be there and speak. Everybody was real excited about it, of course. So she came and talked to the kids, and she left about one in the afternoon. Now, I hate to criticize somebody's police force, but I'm sure I'm not the per first person to do this. The police that day in Norway were like the Keystone Cops. If this wasn't so horrible and such a tragedy, it would be comical. They were so ill-prepared, and it, it was just a disaster. They, at the time, had one police helicopter, which I think was in use at the time. They couldn't get it to go to Utoya. I hope that they've remedied that. They had a lot of resources that they didn't use, they didn't set up roadblocks from the city, so Anders was able to drive in his Fiat after he blew up the city. He was able to get in and, and just make his way to Utoya. There were no alerts sent out to the police. They did have a terror response plan, but for whatever reason, it was not implemented. In the meantime, on the island of Utoya, a couple of kids are having a conversation and remember, these are teenagers, and one of them named Simon says to a girl named Mary, we're not safe here. And she said, what? And he goes, well, if this is an attack on the Labor Party, and she said, now you just shut up. And he goes, I'm only saying that it's no coincidence that they went for the government quarter. That means this is an attack on the Labor Party, and we're part of the Labor Party. Unfortunately, he was one of the, the uh, kids that was killed on Utoya. But here's this teenager with the, enough sense to connect what's going on, and none of the adults anywhere have, apparently, Bravik was in the cafeteria building. Remember how I told you he rounded them up and on the pretense of debriefing them about what was going on downtown. In a hundred seconds, he killed 13 people in there and left several critically injured. There was a group of 11 of them laying on the ground 
and he went around kicking them to see if they were dead. And he said he found it really interesting when when he shot somebody in their head, they would make this like um, kind of exhalation or like an awe or a groan or something. And he thought this was really cool, so he purposely hung around and shot them in the head because he wanted to hear this sound. Sick fuck. And there were 26 men in the Delta team, the terror response team. These people, I, I have no idea why, they didn't know where Utoya was. I guess they finally figured it out. But there was a total lack of communication. They were unable to coordinate their op. At 6.01 p.m., Anders calls to surrender. We went over that conversation. So this would have been like a scene out of a a Laurel and Hardy movie. The police, or the Delta Force, all dressed in their gear. You know, their heavy tactical gear. They have a dinghy, one of those like rubber boats, and it held 10 people. So they all pile in this dinghy, but because they're so heavy with all their gear and their equipment and shit, the boat sinks. So fortunately for them, there was somebody else on the lake that came and put them all in their boat. So that boat sank. So they go through this procedure again. And meanwhile, this asshole's still on the island shooting people. And they're doing all this pissing around, sinking boats and everything else. Finally, they get to the island and remember what happens in uh, the first episode. He does surrender and they take him to the building and question him. But in if you see the, the movie on um, Netflix, it's called 22nd July. And I told you how excellent it was. There's a kid in the movie named VR. And when I first watched it, watched it, I wasn't sure if he was, you know how sometimes movies, they'll have a person and it's not really a real person. It's like a composite character of different people. Well, he's actually a real person and he is so cool. He got shot in the brain, and he still has, because of how the bullet exploded, he still has bullet fragments in his brain. But he he was, like, um, flatlined, or, like, actually technically dead for a little bit. He was in a coma, and he made a miraculous recovery. And I have a picture of him in my social media. Just a, a wonderful, brave kid. And I have part of an interview with him. This clip here is is from the United Nations. And I want you to hear from his point of view what he went through when he was shot. I think about it probably indirect or directly once every hour in some way because it's a part of me. I hear Gunnar saying to another friend of mine, that was a gun. Boom, boom, you know. And then... The following seconds are the longest seconds of my life, I think, because I'm looking dead in the eye with, with one of my friends, and some people with blood in their face was running across the camp and said, he's shooting us. And then, of course, all hell breaks loose. I'm just concerned about my brother, of course, you know, trying to make him feel safe. So we're running and get to this cliff area, and me and my brother is the first one to arrive there, and we hear the shots coming closer and closer and closer. It was a cliff like this, but me and my brother was there, and it was an overhang, but then again, you can, sh- you can stand there and just shoot down in the cliff. And he did. And I don't remember where I was hit the first time, or the second time. But I remember being hit and, and falling down to the water, you know. 
I was like lying in the water and then I saw my brother just one meter away and he was like trying to get me to, you know, he wanted me to come. And I, I, I stood up and kicked him down in the water. I wanted him to go around the bay. I stood up, got shot again. The last shot was the one in the head. I got hit five times in total. I understood that I was very badly injured and I understood that if I just rest now, I will die. So I, I just lie there and talked and talking to the people and you know, is this going to be all right? I don't remember if it made any sense what I said. And then it slowly just went morphed into like old pirates song, you know, just like being a drunken sailor down there just singing and trying to, you know, trying to not fade away, you know. The willingness to live was just so super strong. I felt that I couldn't see on my eye and then I just kind of went up and then I, I realized that I was actually touching my brain. And then I remember thinking, okay, I should not touch my brain no more. The minutes went, the hours went, two hours in. At one point, the terrorist was coming uh, around again. And then uh, someone in the cliffs said, shut up, really. They had to put me in a coma because I needed to be in a medical coma, of course. And the next six days, they did over 20 surgeries on me. They rebuilt half my face from here to here. It's, it's not, it's like this plate there and like this goose and stuff. I'm uh, 23 years old and I uh, study law uh, here in Tromsø, my uh, hometown. I'm honestly quite excited about being able to study and, and being able to have an exam. So, so I, I'm, I mean, no, I'm happy with it, actually. For me, the most important support was from my family and my brother especially, because we have shared this thing. And, you know, just talking about it every single day. Talking, talking, talking. Being able to manage post-traumatic stress. You need to own it and control it. You need to be, it's, it can't control you, you need to control it. You know? I tried in the first year or so to just do exactly what I did before and this will not change me, this will not. But you know, it's, it's really about accepting that some things are changed. Accept that I will probably not get an A grade on any exam in my life. I will probably not be able to work as long hours as I once thought I was going to do. Slowly but steady, rebuilding trust in society and rebuilding myself. If it's going to the theater, if, if it's being a part of the National Day celebration with all the people at one place. All that kind of stuff that seemed like regular stuff then is not that now. But then again, I will show up there anyway. And I will be there and it will be better than last year. And last year was better, uh, was better than the year before that. And the year before that was terrible. But then again, I should probably not play football. I have a really bad arm and of course I have, still have some bullet things in my head. I shouldn't play football, it's the wrong thing to do, but then again, for me it's a symbol of, you know, yes, I probably shouldn't, but then again, I will, because it's my life, I choose to do it, you know. So that was Vilor. He is such an amazing kid. Did you hear him say about getting shot through the eye? And he's like, I reached up and touched my brain, and I'm like, I probably shouldn't be touching my brain. I'm like, oh my god. So... They got the kids, the, the survivors, onto a boat, and they were taking them away from the island. And the police are like, don't look back. And, of course, they look back, and they see all along the shore of the island, there's dead kids lying there. Some were halfway out of the water, some were on the rocks, and the rocks were, like, red with blood. They were having like a triage center at the nearby Sunvolden Hotel and all the 
injured there were there with the parents and everybody was like all you know pandemonium like where's my kid is my kid here is my kid okay and they were calling different hospitals to find out you know if their kids were in the hospital and they didn't really know a lot of parents like you know is my kid okay are they dead are they in a hospital in the end, there were 68 people killed instantly. One survived for an extra day, but would die the day later. And there were 110 injured. Breivik used hollow point bullets, which are a kind of bullet that's more deadly. And what they do is they like explode when they reach their target, which in this case was people. And a lot of the people at the hospitals that were working on the kids had never seen this kind of bullet. They didn't know. They're like, what is this going on here? They weren't familiar with that kind of wound. And that, that poor Vilar, because of where the bullet is in his brain, it's like down by his brain stem, they took out as much of as they could of bullet wishes and fragments. So he's walking around for the rest of his life with little pieces of bullets in his brain. In the meantime, while they're questioning Bravik, they go get his mom and they took her to the police station to question her. And of course, they search her apartment and the police told her, your son is charged with acts of terrorism. And she's all shocked, like, what? You know, like, you got to be kidding. And they said, did she have any idea that any of this was going on? And she said, no. Absolutely not. He shuts himself in his room. He does whatever he does in there. And, you know, I have no clue what he's up to. And she did say some, give some insight into him. She said that he has definite opinions on things. She said, quote, he thinks so much has gone wrong with society. People have too much freedom. More Christianity in schools is needed. And she's like, why would he kill people? And she was all crying and sobbing. And of course, imagine the police knock on your door and they're like, we've just arrested your son. He killed 77 people. And the shock has to be, and I guess shame and, you know, questioning like, what did I do wrong? What could I have done? And one of her quotes was, I'm the unhappiest mother in Norway. It didn't take the media long to find Jens, who was living in the south of France. And they asked him, basically, what do you think of your son? You know, blah, blah, blah. And here's a short media interview with him. It is an attack that has shocked a nation and the world. A self-confessed killer who brought Oslo to its knees and left one family member wishing he was dead. The father of Anders Bering Breivik has spoken about the fatal attacks carried out by his son. Interviewed by Norway's TV2 reporters, he asked not to be seen on camera. Jens Breivik clearly shocked after Friday's attacks. I thought, is this possible? This must be a mistake. It can't be true. But then I realized that it was true, although it is still completely incomprehensible to me that something like this could happen. It's impossible to explain. Living in southern France after his retirement, the reporter naturally quizzed him as to his son's past, searching for any clues to explain the sickening killings. 
He was just like other boys of his age. I'm not sure what more to say. He was a bit withdrawn. He wasn't very sociable in a way, but he had no extreme tendencies back then. Now in custody, Breivik has been told he will have no visitors bar his lawyer. His father has no urge to contact him. No, I will never have more contact with him. In my darkest moments, I think that rather than killing all those people, he should have taken his own life. It is a decade and a half since the 76-year-old saw his son. Following his divorce from Breivik's mother, the former diplomat attempted to win custody of his then-toddler son. His bid was unsuccessful. Now under police protection, he says he will always feel remorse. I feel shame and grief for what has happened. I really wish it undone, but it has happened and it's horrible to think about. I'm going to live with this for the rest of my life. So as you can see, he's just totally devastated. He's he's like, I'm too ashamed to ever go back to Norway. He's ashamed of how his son turned out. And this just is a perfect example of what I call the ripple effect of crime on how it affects the people that were directly involved, their family, their friends, the parents and family of the killer, who now their lives are ruined. They have to, to figure out how they're going to deal with this. And in this case, the entire country, because remember, this type of violence is not common in Norway. And when it, when it happened, the whole country was devastated. And one of my friends who's in Colorado, who's a um, fellow Avs fan, that's how I met her. She actually lived in Norway as a kid, which I didn't know. And she said that she remembered when this happened, it was all over the news. And she's like, we were all scared. The, the entire country was terrified because of this. In the meantime, the police are still on Utoya, where they have Anders and they're questioning him. And he has a list of demands that he wants. And he had these ready. Like he, we know that obviously he put a lot of planning into these attacks. And I don't think that he planned to get killed. I think he planned to surrender and get arrested. And we'll see a little bit more of the reason for that later on. But one of the demands was to send and receive letters in prison. And they were like, yeah, okay, you will. And... I, I guess he asked some more details about that, like how soon or I don't know, something, whatever. And the police said, well, that depends on the investigation. And it's hard to say in a murder case. And he goes, murder case? This wasn't murder. It was political executions. And then he goes, Knights Templar Europe has given me permission to execute category A, B, and C traitors. For me, that is for us. The Knights Templar is the highest political authority in Norway. Remember, this is only in his mind. In his reasoning, the people on Utøya were class C traitors, whatever that means. Again, meaning only to him. Another demand, he wanted to use a computer for a minimum of eight hours a day with a printer. And he goes, I am an intellectual, not a warrior. My calling is to fight with the pen, but occasionally one has to use the sword. Ugh. So full of himself. And the other things he wanted were Wikipedia. He wanted to serve his sentence with as few Muslims as possible. And the fifth one was no halal. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. H-A-L-A-L. -A -L. 
meat. He wasn't to eat this certain kind of meat. So I looked it up and it's um, kind of disgusting. It's for basically for specially made for Muslims or as defined in, in the Quran. And the difference is that it or animals, the animals that are going to be used are slaughtered differently from like conventional meat. Once they're killed, the animal's blood must drain completely since Muslims who eat this kind of meat do not consume the fresh blood of animals. I don't know. It's all gross to me. But he was concerned that, I don't know if he thought if he ate it, he'd turn into a Muslim or who knows. And then he said, if I don't get access to a PC with Word in prison, I shall terminate myself. And everybody's probably thinking, well, uh, don't let us stop you. That's what I would think anyway. He continued to insist that he executed the victims, not murder. And to him, there was some kind of difference. Now, remember earlier I mentioned an attorney named Gear Lipestad. Anders worked in this guy's building, and he said he was kind of interested in him because this attorney at the time was defending a neo-Nazi. So he remembered this, and he called this dude, and, well, he was in bed. Mr. Lipestad was at the time. And Anders was like, would you defend me? And in the the movie, and that's probably pretty accurate. I feel bad for this attorney because even he hates Anders. You can tell that he does. And he's like, what the fuck? This, you know, this dude who by now at this time is probably the most hated person in Europe, if not the world. And he gets a phone call asking for him to defend him. I'm not really sure of, of their law, how that goes, but he had to, for whatever reason, he had to go through with defending him. And Anders asked if he could wear his Knights Templar uniform. And we all know what that is, is the stupid thing that he got from wherever. And he said all kinds of like bullshit on it, like fake, imaginary, ridiculous, whatever, in, insignia on it. Well, he wanted to wear this to his hearing. They're like, no. So he had what we here in the United States would call a preliminary hearing. And he was charged with what they call terror paragraphs. And he faced the maximum of 21 years. He did not acknowledge his guilt. And he did not acknowledge that court had any power over him or to do anything legally because this was his reasoning. And his rationale behind this was that these judges or the court were elected by a society that Breivik did not approve of. So therefore, they didn't have any authority over him. During this court appearance, he starts to read from his manuscript. And the judge says, okay, that, that's enough of that shit now. And as you might expect, he saw a lot of psychologists and psychiatrists. His attorney, Mr. Lipestad, and his team, his defense team, they wanted to go for the insanity defense, which kind of makes sense. You can't blame them because somebody like this who did what he did, you kind of tend to think that there's something wrong with him. So he meets with a few psychologists and one of the things he says to them is that something to the effect that 
wow, Jung's are lucky because every forensic psychiatrist in the world probably envies you because you get to analyze me. Again, the narcissism is just off the charts. So before he would answer any of their questions, he had a list of seven questions that he wanted to ask them and they had to answer to his satisfaction before he would lower himself to answer their questions. A couple of these questions were, do you think all national Darwinists are psychopaths? And do you support multiculturalism or have you had connections with Marxist organizations? That'd be like me asking a uh, psychiatrist or psychologist if they're a Democrat or Republican or who did they vote for or whatever. Apparently, they answered these questions to his satisfaction because he did cooperate with the interview. And he said that he'd studied, quote, a great deal of psychology. And I'm going to talk about psychology later, of course, but I'll just let you know now that they did write, quote, the subject believes he knows what the people he is talking to are thinking. This phenomenon is judged to be founded in psychosis. He presents himself as unique and the focal point of everything that happens, believing that all psychologists in the world envy the experts their task. Indicative of grandiose ideas, the subject clearly has no clear perception of his own identity as he shifts between referring to himself in the singular and the plural, unquote. He had 13 sessions with these people, and as a group, they came to the conclusion that he was a paranoid schizophrenic. They thought that he was psychotic during the attacks, and he was still psychotic. In other words, that he was not responsible for his actions. At first, he was on board with this. He's like, okay. And then he thought about it, and he called his attorney. His Actually, he had like a team of attorneys. And he's like, listen, you know, I've been thinking about this, and I don't want to be judged and saying I want to be held accountable because it's important that I get my message out, meaning his uh, rantings, I guess his manifesto. And if I were to be judged insane, well, that would just be seen as the rantings of a madman. And I am not a madman. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, by the way. I'm totally sane and my ideas are legitimate. And he still thinks that he can influence people or get followers or start some kind of movement or civil war. And the question is going to come down to, is this because of psychosis, like actual delusions, or is this just a an extremely extreme? Is that a, is that a, that doesn't sound right, extremely extreme. A very, very extreme form of narcissism. So that is kind of the million dollar question here. And I'm going to give that an answer, by the way, when we get to the end. Interestingly, his judge's name was Venka Elizabeth Arntzen. Interesting because Venka, of course, is his mother and Elizabeth is his sister. So she asked for a second psychological evaluation of him to be done. And there must not be many psychiatrists in Norway because they had a hard time finding one who either hadn't already interviewed him or 
hadn't commented in the media on the case. But they did find two of them. And interestingly, he was observed 24-7 in his cell, kind of like a zoo animal. And these people talked to him, ate with him, played games with him, and then they would submit their reports on how he acted and, and uh, behaved and such. Bravik said that the psychiatrist's weakness was that they had no response to religion and ideology which he's still using as the reason behind his crimes. And he said, quote, If it had been up to your profession, all priests would no doubt have been shut up in lunatic asylums because they had a calling from God, end quote. He said that Islamic militants were his source of inspiration for the bombing and the shooting, which is so ironic because you know how this whole thing is supposed to be against a statement against Islam, which he sees as such a horrible detriment to the world. Unlike the first two psychiatrists, these two went on the websites that he frequented, and they studied the language and opinions that these other people had to say. And what they concluded was that he had dissocial personality disorder. And remember, that's another term for antisocial, with narcissistic traits. Some of the quotes found in their report were grandiose perception of his own importance, saw himself as unique, had appetite for praise, success, and power, and totally lacking in emotional empathy, remorse, or affective expression. And I mean, definitely, that's glaringly obvious, I think, to, to everybody. So his trial started in April of 2012, and the whole world was literally watching. They had crowds, they had media from all over the world. The trial was televised, there were cameras everywhere, their uh, courtroom was heavily guarded, and I just want to play this little news clip that appeared on the news of the first day of the trial. It just kind of sets, sets the basis for what's to come. There'll be many more, but this really was Anders Bering Breivik's day in court, an opportunity to present his ideology, his manifesto delivered in an hour and a half. But the cameras would not be rolling. This would not be a televised public platform. It is as wrong to call me evil as it is to call those who dropped the atomic bomb evil. They killed 300,000 Japanese in order to save millions. So if we can force governments to change policies of multiculturalism by killing 70 people, then we will preserve our values and prevent war in future. So went the tone of his opening statement, a diatribe of history, politics and philosophy, the basis of beliefs that drove Breivik to acts of unspeakable cruelty. These were not innocent children. They actively worked to uphold multicultural values, a youth wing similar to the Hitler Youth and Utoya indoctrination camp. The judge told him to moderate his language. Breivik said he would. I know it is gruesome what I have done. I can see the suffering I have caused. I don't wish to augment it. A single moment of sensitivity for the survivors and bereaved. 
It's difficult to discern a clear strategy in the prosecution's approach at this stage. There seems to be an attempt in the querying of minor details contained in Breivik's lengthy manifesto to paint a picture of a petty liar and a violent racist rather than a man acting in the name of a higher cause. Breivik, meanwhile, seems to have a much clearer purpose. He wants to be judged sane by this court and sentenced as such so that his ideas will live on and be remembered. But is it all going according to plan? He gets reduced by all these harsh questions from the prosecutor. Who are you? What gives you the right to be the executioner of Norway? What is this? And he's so struggling in answering these questions in a coherent, logical and stern way. Breivik described the badges, the uniforms, the grandiose titles contained in his manifesto as pompous presentation that, he said, had been a mistake. I made it easy for them to abuse what I said, and so they did. Easy, he means, for the press to proclaim him a madman. And as Bering Breivik is determined to show, he is anything but. The first thing he did when he came into the courtroom and they took off the handcuffs was he gave the Nazi salute. If you don't know what that is, it's... You hold your right arm straight out, and that kind of caused like a stir, like, oh my God, look what he's doing. And that's exactly what he wanted. He knew literally the eyes of the world were on him. And he's probably thinking in his wee brain, what can I do to make a statement to get attention? He's such an attention seeker. It's like anything to draw attention to himself, whether negative or positive. He doesn't care, as long as it's attention, as long as people are looking at him or talking about him. And the first thing he says, I don't know if you could hear it in the clip, because, of course, it was in Norwegian, but there was a, a translator. He says, I do not recognize the Norwegian court of law because your mandate has come from parties that support multiculturalism. And he, he has... You'll never believe the shit he comes up with. This is a trial, okay? These things are said to the judge. He goes, he says to the judge, I am also aware that you are a friend of Gro Harlem Brentland's sister. And the judge says, do you want to raise a concrete objection to my participation because of that? And he says, no, I just want to make a point. Again, nothing to do with anything. But he's, I think what I would say, if looking at this trial as like a, a sport or a game or, or, you know, if I was commenting on it as you would a, a sport and I was a commentator, I would say, okay, here he comes right off the box, being aggressive, being a dickhead, starting with this attitude and total belligerent behavior and disrespect of the court and everybody, of course, and the whole country, just because he likes to. And you're going to see this theme followed throughout the trial. And I don't know how this judge and the people in the court didn't lose their shit with him because, well, you'll see, he's just very trying. I feel bad for people who had to deal with him, his attorney, the psychiatrist, the judge, because he toys with them like a cat toys with a mouse. And he just fucks with people. Anyway, 
uh, shout out to all those professionals who had to deal with him. So one of the things that the prosecution did that they usually do in a trial is they show pictures like, and these weren't the actual crime scene photos because they they were determined to explicit and upsetting to show like the public. So what they did was with those was they just showed them and there's no drawer here. This is just a panel of judges. They just passed them like amongst the judges. So as the pictures were shown, like pictures of um, you know his farm, his weapons that he was was making, his stupid uniforms and such. He sat there smirking like he's, you know, all proud of himself. And then they showed his film, his YouTube thing that he made. And he sat there and cried like boo-hoo. And um, they asked during the, like, the break out in the, you know how you take a break from court and everybody mills about in the hallways, you know. And the media asked a psychiatrist, not one of his, but just some psychiatrist, that happened to be hanging around they're like well what do you think of his you know boohoo act in there what what do you think that was about and i'm gonna paraphrase this but the psychologist said something to the effect like well the film showed his vision that he had of civil war and then like him being a knight and being all important and powerful and blah 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 and he knows that this will never happen because now he's destined to basically rot away in prison, hopefully, for the rest of his life. And he's crying because he realizes that he will never be a knight or, you know, this stuff is never going to happen. So he's just feeling sorry for himself, as as, uh, I think we all know. Second day of the trial, he, and this is crazy, he, I don't even know if you could call this testify, but he stood there on the stand and he read a monologue and it started out, I stand here today as a representative of the Norwegian and European resistance movement. And he goes on, I have carried out the most sophisticated and spectacular attack on Europe since the Second World War. But um, he's bragging about this. So he's going on and on, blah, 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 blah. And the judge said, are you almost done? And he's like, no, I'm only on page six of 13. And she goes, well, hurry it up. So he's going on and on. And the judge is getting so irritated. She's like, bravic, bravic. And he goes, I have five pages left. So there was a, a person there, and I don't think we have anything similar in the United States, but she was an attorney, and she represented all of the victims and she broke in and she's like um okay the victims and their relatives here they're getting pretty irritated that him standing there spouting off his bullshit has gone on for so long so the judge said did you hear that and he's like yeah she goes do you understand that yeah and she was like okay i ask you to conclude as quickly as possible And this is what I mean by how did this judge keep such patience? I mean, I've been in court numerous times and I've seen judges at mostly sentencings that I've been to, you know, for my own work that are, uh, I don't want to say just murder or just rape, but certainly not one of the most infamous mass murders in the world. And I've seen judges get pretty red-faced and... 
I guess you could call it emotional or mad, but he ended his soliloquy with, quote, I acted on the principle of necessity on behalf of my people, my religion, my city, and my country. I therefore demand to be acquitted of these charges, end quote. What the fuck? Get over yourself. So, August 24th, the trial ends, and the judge reaches a verdict, and to the surprise of nobody, she says that he's guilty of the terror acts, and he smiles, was his reaction. He, he has that trademark smirk. He's sentenced to a maximum of 21 years, and before you get upset and say, what? 21 years? You're kidding? Not exactly, because as long, the way the this law works here. As long as he represents a threat to society, this sentence would be extended by five years. And this could go on indefinitely until he's dead. And everybody thinks that that's what's going to happen because he's probably the most, one of the most famous or infamous and most hated criminals in Europe, if not the world. And no I guess court, or I don't know if they have parole there, in their right mind, I don't think would let him loose on society. I know this is getting long, and honestly, is anybody surprised? I mean, I have this habit. I can't do just just one piece cases, it seems. I just, like, get so involved in gathering information, and there's so much on this one, and I, th I forgot to mention, this case was a request. Um, I think her name is, oh my god, that's horrible. It's somebody I met on Facebook in a true crime podcast group, and she said, I wish somebody would cover Andrews Bering Breivik, and I said, oh, I'll do it, because he actually was on my master list to do at some point. So, I want to say Sarah, but whoever you are, if you're listening, you'll know that this one's for you. And it, it's um, such a horrible thing that I think that more people should be aware of. And the next clip I have is, I did mention him earlier, he is a sociologist and he testified for the defense. And what he said was, remember I told you earlier uh, we discussed Bravik's obsession with the game Worlds of Warcraft and how he would just totally lose himself in it. Like, And I hinted that perhaps he couldn't separate fantasy from reality. And this sociologist here seems to think that he definitely could not. And this is just his opinion. Remember, he is for the defense. So just um, here he is and... You know, you don't have to believe what he says. One factor which hasn't been taken sufficiently into account is his obsession with a certain kind of computer game and his way of using the internet in order to create for himself a kind of alternative reality. He likes order. He doesn't like impurity and chaos. And he's, he's obsessed with boundaries. So, I mean, had this case been less serious, you might have said that he's received too strict a potty training, you know, when he was hired. But, of course, uh, this, this is serious. It's real life. But he does not seem to be very successful at distinguishing between the 
virtual reality of World of Warcraft and other computer games and reality. So when he puts on his uniform, he's no longer the, the lone, slightly unsuccessful young man from the West End of Oslo, never competed in education, never did really well in his working life. He becomes a knight, a defender of the uh, civilization of Europe against the invading Muslim. With his homemade uniform, with all the insignia and medals that he's bought on eBay, and with membership in a big and powerful secret society, the Knights Templar. To him, I think it's, it's very important uh, that people actually believe uh, what he says. And this is also why uh, the proceedings today are such an embarrassment to him, because there are certain answers, uh, certain answers that he cannot give, because uh, that would, uh, I mean, it, it would show that he is, uh, he's trying to deceive us all with, uh, with lies, that uh, many of the networks, the organizations, the meetings, uh, all the secret plots, all the other terror cells that are supposed to exist around Europe don't exist. Later on, when we talk about, when we finish and we talk about the psychology this game, World, Worlds of Warcraft, is going to come up again. One of the psychiatrists who interviewed him took note of his behavior during this game. And like I said, I've never played it, so I'll just have to take these people's word for it. But apparently to be good at this game, which he was, you have to be, um, according to this psychiatrist, goal-oriented and productive. And he was, and he managed to get himself up high in the ranks of this game. And they actually talked to another player. I don't know if it was somebody in his, like, guild or team or whatever, but the player said that Breivik was, quote, the best officer that he, the player, had ever had. And what they're trying to say is that if he's so demented and schizophrenic and mentally a mess and, and just, you know, his mind's all over the place and, and blah, blah, blah. He couldn't be because he was so good at a game that required a concrete set of thinking skills, like logic and the ability to, I guess, meet goals and think and stuff like that. So they used his talent in this game as saying, well, he can't be delusional and a maniac if he was so good at this task that required so much, I guess, logic and precision. So he is serving his time in solitary confinement. And before you say, well, I don't think you're going to, if you were on the off chance thinking, oh, poor Anders, Erase that notion from your head, because this motherfucker lives in better conditions than I think most of us do. There's a known statistic that Norway has the nicest, as in like most luxurious, prisons in the world. His cell is technically three different cells, where he has his little, you know, bed and desk and such. And I saw a picture of it somewhere on like a video or documentary or something. And it, it looks more like a miniature hotel room. Like if you saw a picture of it and you didn't know what it was, you'd think it was a wee little, maybe a dorm room. There's no way you would think it was a prison cell. But he's allowed access to computer games. And one part of the little cell has gym equipment in it. And interestingly, only staff with certain training are allowed to interact with him because he's considered 
like extremely dangerous, which uh, kind of goes without saying. So in July 2015, he, like a toddler who's not being paid enough attention, I guess, he again brings the world attention to himself by suing the Norwegian government for violations of human rights. You heard that right. This asshole who killed 77 people is going to court saying that his rights are being violated. And in August of 2020, believe it or not, an Oslo district court rules that his imprisonment, because he is in solitary confinement, it does violate Article 3 of the European Convention on Human Rights, which prohibits inhuman or degrading treatment. And he claimed that he was being treated inhumanely. He had a list of about 20 absolutely ridiculous complaints. And aside from the solitary confinement thing, some of the things he complained about were, this is more one of the more ridiculous ones, whenever somebody came to see him, he had to put up his hands in this little, like, shelf type thing, and they would put handcuffs on him. And he said that the act of being handcuffed was demeaning. Oh my god, he's, it's just absolutely unbelievable. So in 2000, 2017, the appeals court overturned his appeal. And I have a short uh, news clip to play for you about that. Anders Breivik, the man convicted of killing 77 people in Norway's worst peacetime atrocity, is suing his Norwegian jailers for alleged cruel and inhumane treatment. Mr Breivik, who gave a Nazi salute as he appeared in court, is contesting that the country is violating his rights by keeping him in isolation. At the Skien prison where he is being held, Brevik is the only inmate in the extra high security wing. He is regularly handcuffed and strip searched and has no contact with other inmates. He is allowed to make calls and has access to a TV and gaming device. All of his letters are read by the prison authorities and they can be held back if they encourage crime. According to his lawyer, he has only had one personal visitor, his mother, before she died in 2013. The most severe accusation is the one of uh, cruel, inhuman and uh, degrading uh, punishment in connection with uh, prolonged uh, solitary confinement. That is something where we know Norway has a problem. Uh, That is something where Norway has received international criticism over many years and never really amended the situation. Over the four days of hearings, Mr Brevik is expected to complain that the prison has violated the European Convention on Human Rights a contention the state denies. The Norwegian government claims that his prison regime overall is according to the convention, that he has access to uh, training to uh, more than one cell, he has access to um, fresh air, and to have some visitors. Uh, So the government claims that these conditions is balanced enough to be uh, according to the convention. On July 22, 2011, Mr. Brevik killed eight people with a car bomb in Oslo and gunned down 69 people, mostly teenagers, at a political youth camp on the nearby Utøya Island. During his trial in 2012, he expressed no regrets. Mr. Brevik's goal, according to his lawyer, is to be allowed to have more social contact. He is expected to take the stand on Wednesday. 
Now, the final decision in this saga was made in June of 2018 at the European Court of Human Rights, which is located in Strasbourg, France. And this is kind of like, think of it as the Supreme Court of Europe. They interpret the European Convention on Human Rights, and they hear any appeal from anybody in Europe alleging that one of the member states has breached one of their rights. This court was established in 1959, and it has 47 judges, one from each member state. And finally, these people said, bullshit, quit wasting people's time, knock it off, your rights are not being violated. And that was the final say. Now, before we get into psychology, which is, of course, how I like to end these episodes, I just want to touch on one final thing. And that was the response that the emergency services had to the attacks on the 22nd of July. The prime minister appointed a commission to study everything that was done, when it was done, how it was done, etc., and prepare a report that basically criticized or critiqued the operations of the government agencies on that day. And I'm going to look at this in terms of my own experience in emergency services. When I was a firefighter, there's a term we used for in incidents like this, and um, it's called clusterfuck. And you might or might not be able to determine the meaning of this based on what happened that day, but it's, it's kind of what it it says. It's like you have a fire or some other emergency incident and it's not well managed and you have all kinds of people from everywhere responding and nobody seems to know what they're doing and you make a big mess. And that's the technical term is clusterfuck for something like this. When I was a firefighter, after every incident, like major incident that we had, whether it was a fire a vehicle accident, whatever, following the incident itself. Whoever was in charge of us, if if it was our chief, he would do it. If he wasn't there, deputy chief or like whoever was the highest ranking officer would conduct what's called a debriefing. And that person would go over all the positives and negatives of how we performed as a team. Uh, What was our response time? If it was an accident with entrapment, meaning, you know, somebody's stuck in a, in a car and we have to use tools to get into the car. By the way, um, I don't know what they're called, other places. In the United States, you have to be a VRT, Vehicle Rescue Technician, which I was. You have to have special training to use the tools that'll get you into a car or truck or school bus to rescue people. If that was involved, did we get to the people inside in a timely manner and give them as much treatment as we could while we were waiting to extricate them? And we would go over, okay, the cons are, you know, this could have been better, this should have been better, this person drop the ball here, we should have done better, we should have. And we do, well, I don't participate anymore actively, but we did have drills of the major buildings that are in our area. Like, for instance, it's not even around anymore, but there was a nursing home in our territory that's like right down the road from me. We would have a lot of drills 
we would go to the nursing home and we would just walk through and get an idea of what's there and then implement a plan in case of an emergency, like a fire there, how we would evacuate it, where would we get water from. Fortunately, there was a hydrant literally right outside of the building. And we also did that with the high school in case there was an incident like a, we called it a mass casualty incident. But it mainly means something like a shooting or something. How would we get rescued the students and how would we do this and that? And, and we would do these drills and time ourselves and then critique ourselves. And I'm assuming that the officials in Norway had similar plans in place as to how to evacuate this or what to do in case that happens. And as it turns out, they did. And I'll just real briefly go over the highlights of this report when it was finished. And this will be the report that the commission, commission on July 22nd was what it was called. And they found that, number one, the attack on the government complex, the bomb, could have been prevented through better implementation of security measures that they already had in place, meaning they already had some guidelines and this would mainly be alerts uh, as if, hey, some wacko on this farm here is getting all this really bizarre stuff in the mail, like fertilizer, etc. And remember I mentioned that he got a lot of this stuff around Christmas when the, the uh, Postal Service was already overburdened with people sending gifts through the mail. If it wouldn't have been that time of year when he bought this stuff, supposedly it should have triggered some kind of alarm to somebody, but it just didn't. The number two finding was that the authorities' ability to protect the people on Utoya failed, and they said the perpetrator, meaning of course Anders, could have and should have been stopped earlier in the day after he had set the bomb off, and he, he had like a whole almost an hour from that point of time to make his way to the island. And the third criticism was that the police service didn't do enough exercises as far as their response during a terror attack. And another one showed that there were gaps or things to be desired in the way that the police shared information. And that would be with each other and the public. In general, saying they dropped the ball on communicating with each other. And um, I think we did see some specific instances of that on that day. But the commission did say, and the survivors also later said, that they were very pleased at the way the patients were triaged and given treatment. So that is a positive thing. And for dessert, so to speak, I want to talk about psychology, and yeah, we have a lot to work with here. As I mentioned, Anders was evaluated by actually four separate psychiatrists, two for his defense and two for the prosecution. The first defense psychiatrist found him to have, and this is very generic, just no psychosis, just, you know, that he was rational. The other one diagnosed him with autism Tourette syndrome, narcissistic personality disorder, and possible paranoid psychosis. One diagnosed him with paranoid schizophrenia, and the other one said that he 
had an antisocial personality disorder with narcissistic traits. One of them was quoted as saying that he believed he's responsible for determining who is to live and die in Norway, and that these phenomena are regarded as bizarre, grandiose delusions. He had a lot of strange ideas, as I think we know. One of them was that he could be the new regent in Norway following a coup d'etat and power takeover, meaning like he would overthrow the government and be the king of Norway. And he even had a name picked out for himself, because like when you become king or queen, you gotta have a cool name, right? Well, the name he was gonna use was Sigurd the Crusader II, and he believed that there's an ongoing civil war. Another quote in their report was, his acknowledgement of having committed atrocities seems superficial and technical meaning he's like yeah i killed 77 people so what like he's aware of it on one level but he doesn't seem to care about it and the report ended with quote the court's conclusion thus far is that the defendant did not have the symptoms that fulfill the general icd-10 criteria for schizophrenia Unquote. So to sum it up, what the team of shrinks found was that, okay, he's weird. His ideas are like totally out there, totally ridiculous. He takes no responsibility for his behavior, he has no empathy. In other words, he totally knew what he was doing on that day. So therefore he is not insane. He is culpable. And I just mentioned that somebody, one of these experts, thought that he was autistic. So whenever, I guess it's just a personal thing of mine since I'm autistic also, whenever I see that a criminal is seen to be or seen to possibly be autistic, I always want to do some more looking into this. I don't know if, if I take it as like personal offense that such a horrible person would be given the same label that I have. If it's a personal thing, I don't know, but I was just curious, so I did some extra research on this. And I found an article in Psychology Today about a study, and interestingly, the study was done in Sweden, which of course is next to Norway, and they found that, remember, this is only one study. In this study, a total of 4.4% of people with autism had been convicted of a violent crime versus 2.6% of people without autism. So if you look at that with just raw numbers, it kind of suggests that there may be a correlation. But then if you read the study more, which of course I did, what they found was that what these people, meaning these violent criminals, had in common with each other, it was not autism, but it was two, I don't know if you want to call them, um, conditions that often go with autism. And those are ADHD and conduct disorder. And they came to the conclusion that it's these two diagnoses that are more likely to determine if somebody's likely to be violent. When I was reading the book about him, there were a couple instances in his childhood that I thought, hmm, that is a sign of autism. Like if, if somebody's 
knows it and they know to look for that. They may have recognized it. And um, one of them was, do you remember, I think it was a couple occasions, people, either neighbors or the family psychologist that they had, they would observe him playing and they said he doesn't really join in with the other kids. He just kind of stands off to himself and watches. That is an autistic trait that we tend to, a lot of us, and not all, all of us, of course, but many of us tend to feel more comfortable in what you call the observer role rather than like an active participant. And the reason for that, I might be overgeneralizing, usually because our social skills are very underdeveloped compared to kids or people of our age. Like basically we don't know how or we just don't have the skills to interact with others, especially when you're a little kid. Compared to what a lot of people might think, the ability to just go on a playground with a bunch of kids you don't know and start playing games or whatever little kids do, talking to them, we don't all have that with us being autistic people. It's very much a challenge for us. We have to kind of learn how to interact with people. And I did recognize that in him. And I thought, hmm, I wonder if... But um, I, I mean, as far as whether he is or is not autistic, of course, I have no idea. I have no way to tell. I've never met him. I certainly don't want to. And yeah, so I just thought that I would address that particular issue. Now, what was interesting was, you know, what a huge incident this was and what a big impact on the whole world. Literally, the whole world was watching this trial. So during the trial, people all over Norway were interested in psychology. They were talking about what could possibly be wrong with him because in the trial, there were all these different experts with all these different theories. So of course, we come to what do I think is wrong with him? And my disclaimer, as you know, I'm not a mental health professional. I've never had any official clinical training or practice, and all I can do is make a guess. But I, of course, do have a guess. And I personally don't think that he has schizophrenia because, by definition, somebody with schizophrenia has a very disordered mind. They're not capable of doing the precise actions, thinking, and behavior that Anders did not only in the planning and execution of his terror attacks, but in uh, the writing of his manifesto, different jobs he's had where he's proven himself to be organized and efficient, that one Worlds of Warcraft player said about how good he was when it came to this game, which obviously requires organizational and logical skills. And if you're schizophrenic, I just don't think that you could pull off any of those things. So if I had to diagnose him, I would agree with those who said that he had antisocial personality disorder with narcissistic personality disorder. And narcissistic personality disorder is defined as a long-term pattern of abnormal behavior characterized by exaggerated feelings of self-importance an excessive need for admiration, and a lack of 
empathy, understanding others' feelings. And I think we can agree that that pretty much fits him to a T. Now, the term narcissistic personality disorder, interestingly, was first coined by Austrian psychoanalyst Heinz Kohut in 1968. And according to his theory, narcissism was actually a defense mechanism that enables the narcissist to suppress issues of low self-esteem. So what he was saying basically was that a narcissist is somebody with such a low self-esteem that they feel the need to build up this constructed facade, if you will, of like invincibility. And Eric Fromm, it's another name I recall from my high school and college psychology days, you know, back when we had one-room schoolhouses. Eric Fromm was a social psychologist and what we call a humanistic psychologist. He came up with the term malignant narcissism, and he went a little bit further and defined this as the quintessence of evil. And I find this really interesting. Eric Fromm was a German-born Jew who escaped Nazi Germany. And he said that Adolf Hitler was the, well, according to him, the person who best embodied this malignant narcissism. And why I think that's so ironic is I think we know by now that Hitler was kind of um, a Breivik's hero because of his belief in the superior race and eugenics and all that crazy bullshit. And you know how when he came into court, he would give the Nazi salute. A few years after he was in prison, he did like officially, I don't know if you, you say come out of the closet or whatever the terminology is, but he like officially declared himself a Nazi to the surprise of absolutely nobody. Clinical narcissism is actually pretty rare. And according to the DSM, which is American, but between half a percent and one percent of the population is diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder, 75 percent of whom are males. When, when I'm researching a case and I'm trying to think, okay, what do I think is wrong with this person? What is their major malfunction? You know, if I was a shrink, what would I diagnose them with? And I'm gonna, I don't think it's stealing, but it's borrowing a concept from one of my favorite YouTubers. And it's, I'm actually a Patreon of him. And if you enjoy my podcast, I guarantee you will love his. His name is Dr. Todd Grande, G-R-A-N-D-E. He is a legitimate psychologist. He doesn't just play psychologist like I do, but he really knows what he's talking about. And he talks about true crime and other mental health topics. People ask him questions, you know, what do you think of this criminal, that criminal? And, and he'll give a his what he thinks is going on in their head. And I've never not agreed with him because he's so just brilliant and fun to watch and entertaining and definitely one of my favorite YouTubers and my favorite true crime people to listen to. So definitely, I'll put his name in my show notes. Definitely check him out. I I guarantee that you will enjoy him. Somebody asked him about Breivik. Like, you know, what do you think is wrong with this person? 
and I really like what he said. So I'm going to go along with, with what he said. He agrees with me on the schizophrenia thing that the things that he did showed too much of a logical type of thinking to be diagnosed schizophrenic because schizophrenia you think of well it's literally defined by disordered thinking meaning your brain is like all over the place and you can't kind of pull yourself together to function in society so yeah for for him he kind of discounted that right off and he pointed to a concept that i wasn't aware of and i looked into it and i'm like that's that's it he hit the nail on the head and it's called pure narcissism and let me explain it to you narcissism is a human trait that we all have that comes in varying degrees it's basically your ego or your sense of self everybody has to have some degree of narcissism in order to function as a human being and like all the other personality traits see it as a on a continuum if you're very low narcissism well you would have like no self-esteem if you have what's considered like a healthy dose you would be somewhere in the middle like i think most of us fall but theoretically and i think if anybody fits this profile it's mr brivik here there are some people who actually come in at a hundred percent pure narcissism that means that they are so far up on the narcissistic scale that they are almost robots. They have absolutely no empathy or connection to other people at all. They just cannot form this. And that, that's what makes them so dangerous. They're not manipulative. They don't feel that they need to play with people because they feel that things like money, power, the kingdom of Norway are like their birthright or just should be given to them. And I mean, if, if you didn't see the narcissism in Ravik, then you just have must have been sleeping through class or something because he is so full of narcissism. It's just literally dripping out of his pores. I think if, if anybody embodies the definition of pure narcissism it's him and these people are scary because basically they have no consequences for their behavior if you have zero empathy for somebody for other people like if you're a psychopath or a sociopath usually you've got some kind of empathy for somebody you know we've you know, how many serial killers have we talked about that have families that, that do manage to love and care for their families to some degree? But other than his very strange relationship with his mother, I don't think that Breivik ever had a, what you would call, true, caring, or loving relationship with any other human being ever, or animal, or any living thing. He's just not capable of it, I don't think. And to take it one step further, I think we can pretty safely say that with him, there's no chance of ever being, quote, rehabilitated. Even if he hadn't done such a, a horrendous thing that I think makes him dangerous for the rest of his life, I just don't think that he is in any way fixable. Now, if you go to the island of Utoya today, 
you will see a couple different memorials there. In place of the cafeteria in which 13 people were killed, there's a memorial building made of parts of the old cafeteria with 69 columns, one for each person killed on the island, enclosed by 495 safeguarding planks. And the dad of one of the survivors said, the house will protect the memory of the 69 who were killed at Utoya. The windows are still left open as they were the day that the kids jumped out of them. And there are still bullet holes in the walls. Also on the walls are pictures of the victims and copies of text messages that they sent to each other and their parents and other people while this was going on. And I haven't had the chance to actually read these, but I imagine that it's it's very horrifying to read these. And out in the woods among the trees is a one-ton metal ring, which is inscribed with the names and ages of all the victims. Usually at the end of an episode, I would dedicate the the episodes to the victims, read all their names, but the only problem is uh, I can't pronounce a whole lot of them. And there's nothing worse, I think, nothing ruder than to pronounce a victim's name wrong. So I'm not going to say the names, but I do have their names and pictures in my social media. So please take a look at that. And of course, these episodes are dedicated to the 77 people who unfortunately lost their lives to this horrible tragedy in Norway in 2011. Vila E. Fred. And I have a special holiday message for Mr. Breivik. Rot in hell, you evil scum bastard Nazi prick. Class dismissed.